The readings from Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits in the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing round the throne and round the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherds. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your words. As we pause to pray for your blessing on Colin and on us as it's preached, we're reminded of the power of the scriptures. The unfolding of your word gives light. Lord, grant us the joy of seeing and understanding. Your word is a lamp to our feet. Lord, give us grace to see how we should live. Your word doesn't return to, uh, to you void without achieving what you sent it to do. Father, please show us Jesus and draw from us the worship and adoration that you rightly deserve. Your son, the Lord Jesus said, these are the scriptures that testify about him. Lord, show us Jesus. Father, when we consider the authority, sufficiency and activity of your word, it's no wonder that you tell us that the preaching of it requires careful handling and listening to it preach requires just as much care. Fill Colin with your spirit as he preaches it now. Fill us with the same spirit as we listen. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, keep your Bible open at uh, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 17, where the magnificent message is this. Our glorious God is bringing a glorious future. Now, let me just ask you this. What do you feel about the future? I reckon that many of us have mixed feelings about the future. We're kind of ambivalent. Uh, on the one hand, we feel excited about it. There are things on the calendar that we look forward to. Uh, but on the other hand, we're also unnerved by it. As we gaze into the future fog, there is uncertainty and there's anxiety as it begins to look a lot like Christmas. As uh, 2022 peaks onto the horizon, uh, the future might feel pretty overwhelming. 
Glorious wouldn't be the adjective that we would put next to it. But even though we might feel that way about the short-term future, Revelation powerfully reminds us that our long-term future is glorious. Our glorious God is bringing a glorious future. And that future vision is meant to galvanize our present. Revelation isn't all about the future, of course, but when it does glimpse tomorrow, it does so to bring present hope, present strength, present perseverance. I pray that in just the next few minutes, we will know something of that fresh help and fresh hope. As we glimpse together with John, three aspects of the church's glorious future. So first, the glorious scale of the church's future. The glorious scale. In verse 9, John looks and there before him was a great multitude that no one could count. Now, this is intriguing because at the opening of chapter 7, we find God's people being counted, being numbered. There's 144,000. In my view, that's a symbolic number representing the church. But the key thing about it is that it's a definitive number. God, in His wisdom, knows the number. He knows the exact number of His people. The shepherd knows the sheep and calls each one by name. And yet, in the second half of chapter 7, John sees the same people from a different perspective, from a human perspective. John, in his limited capacity, cannot begin to count the number. I was thinking of when you visit a large sports stadium, and there are so many people there that you can't possibly count them. Even if you have a rough idea of the capacity of the stadium, even then you still can't count the number. And then the guy comes on the tannoy and he gives you the precise figure. But this is much bigger than Murrayfield. It's faster than Wembley or a Glastonbury. Here is the enormity of the church across the world and down the centuries. No human being can count this. The scale is off the scale, and we're meant to be wowed as John is wowed. Because a promise made so long ago to Abraham is now being fulfilled in its fullness. God promised that Abraham would be the father of many nations. And here is the end result of that promise. It's amazing to think about this, that on a day to come, the last person from the last nation, from the last tribe, from the last language, will be brought into the kingdom. The number will be complete. Babel will be reversed. A divided humanity 
will be united and gathered. There will in the end be one congregation as numerous as the stars in the sky. I'm sure each one of us here sometimes gets hung up on numbers. And there is a healthy concern church leaders should have for numbers. Because numbers mean sheep that Christ died for. And numbers means sheep that we're caused to care for. Over the last 18 months, particularly, we have been concerned about numbers. But a day is coming when we won't have to worry about numbers. And even now, although this should not in any way diminish our diligence, even now we need to understand that final number isn't in doubt. When the church seems small and marginal, let's remember that the grand scale of the church will be utterly glorious. So that's the scale. But let's move on to a second aspect of the future, the glorious safety of the church's future, the glorious safety. John continues that they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, verse 9. Interestingly, they weren't bowing before the throne, as often happens in Revelation, beside a glorious God, bowing is appropriate. But this multitude stands before the throne. The significance almost certainly is that they stand justified. You see, immediately before this section, the context is judgment. Look at the question that ends chapter 6. We read that the great day of wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Who can stand in the face of God's great wrath? Who can withstand the four winds about to be unleashed at the beginning of chapter 7? Who can keep their feet in the face of the hurricane of God's holiness? Well, we come to chapter 7, verse 9, and we see who can stand in the face of great wrath the great multitude. They can stand before the throne, standing in the very spot where sinners couldn't hope to stand. Do you ever get discouraged by your own battles with sin, that grumbling we thought about earlier on? Do you ever get discouraged about the sin in your church, the division in your church? That's a rhetorical question. Of course you do. Do you ever think sometimes, how on earth will I and we ever stand before a holy God? The answer is there at the end of verse 9, that we will have new clothes to wear. We will wear white robes, a symbol of purity and victory. You see, it won't be us who achieves this purity and victory and standing, notice how the robes got white. In verse 14, the robes were washed by the blood of the Lamb. 
Praise God for the paradox of the red that makes white, of the lamb who makes us pure. No wonder this multitude, this, this group which will include you and your local church and the FIC Association of Churches and every other local church, no wonder this multitude is giving God the glory with not a face mask in sight. Neither muted or muffled, they cry aloud as their gusto leads to gratitude. I think the hymn of verse 10 is primarily praising God for saving us from sin. It's safety from sin that's the focus and its consequences. We are saved from the wrath of God. But we will also be saved from the sufferings of this age. In verse 14, an angel explains to John that the people who are in the white robes, the multitude, have come out of the great tribulation. Now, I don't think that's just something that some Christians go through. Through many hardships, we must all enter the kingdom of God. No, here is all of God's justified, blood-washed people, and we're told that they will come through and come out of tribulation and suffering. And the point is that one day, that will be over. We'll not just be safe from sin, we will be safe from suffering. As we serve God, verse 15, sheltered by His very presence. No more persecution, no more illness, no more death, no more division, no more abuse. Here is complete safety. The church's sin dealt with forever, the church's suffering over forever. Can you imagine being this safe? One day you won't need to imagine it. But there's a third and final glory in our future. John ends the passage by focusing on the glorious shepherd of our future, the glorious shepherd. Now, I initially thought about calling this the satisfaction of the church's future, because in verses 16 and 17, we see that the deepest needs of God's people are met. Drawing on passages like Psalm 23, Isaiah 25, Isaiah 49. He's using this language, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. At the climate change conference, they were talking about the development goals being met, and one of them was zero hunger. Well, God will in the end achieve zero hunger. Yet this isn't just about meeting our physical needs, though We've seen even today that will be included. But rather this is saying that the hunger and thirst of our bodies and souls will be satisfied. And who will satisfy us? Well, in verse 17, we see that these deepest needs are not met by you or your eldership team, but they're met by one person. One person will provide all of this. The Lamb 
who is on the throne, who will be the shepherd. The shepherd will care for this multitude that God alone can count. In fact, Scripture makes it clear that Jesus himself is the provision of the new creation. One reason why many Christians are so nonplussed about the idea of the new creation is because they think only about the place and not about the person. Jesus is the joy of the new heaven and the new earth. He's the shepherd of the church's future. But praise God, he's our shepherd even now. Revelation 7, the Lord will be the shepherds. But of course we know Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He's leading us, feeding us, supplying us with mercy right now at our point of need. In the time of tribulation, whatever that means for you right now, let's lift our eyes to him and our hearts to this glorious future. When solid joys and lasting treasures will be yours and mine to know. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for opening John's eyes and our eyes today to the glorious future that lies ahead of us. Thank you that you've not hidden the future from us that we don't need to doubt or fear the outcome of the church. Father, we praise you for the scale, for the security, and for the shepherds who awaits us. May that help us now to persevere, to rejoice even in the midst of our suffering. Help us even now to respond as we lift our voices to you in praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from FIEC. For more resources for church leaders, subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast app and visit our website at fiec.org.uk.